The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading deep into the Amazon, where a team of marine biologists are following up on a lead suggesting the existence of a missing link, a creature that bridges the evolutionary gap between man and fish. Aboard the tramp steamer Rita, doctors Carl Maya, Mark Williams, David Reed, and his girlfriend and colleague Kay Lawrence venture into the idyllic Black Lagoon from which, according to local legends, no one has ever returned. After several members of the expedition are found brutally murdered, it becomes clear that this creature does indeed exist and is more dangerous than they can possibly imagine. But can David and Mark capture it and bring the find of the century back to the civilized world? Can they at least protect Kay from being carried off to its underwater lair? Better yet, why don't they just stop fucking with his home and leave the damn guy alone. Grab your scuba gear and join us as we discuss Creature from the Black Lagoon. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He could his face. Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monsters series. Today we begin our journey with the last of Universal's iconic monsters, the creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm the invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, emerging from the briny deep, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Dan, I'm, I'm one of those people who whistles in the dark, and you caught me web-handed. And stay off my lagoon, will ya? Mike, we have officially entered the Atomic Age. With World War II coming to an end and the Cold War just heating up, science fiction films saw a boom in popularity that lasted from about the mid-40s to the mid-60s, and studios were capitalizing on the anxieties of a movie-going public now living with the threat of nuclear warfare. Suddenly, everyone was making movies about aliens, both friendly and hostile, landing on Earth, or giant bugs and spiders destroying small towns. Of course, you and I are both huge fans of what is arguably the defining monster of this era, Godzilla. But now, in the early 50s, Universal decided they wanted to get in on the action and begin producing a few low-budget science fiction films, including one that would introduce the iconic Gill Man, spawn two sequels, and influence countless filmmakers for decades, including Steven Spielberg and Guillermo del Toro. So, Mike, I know you've seen Creature from the Black Lagoon before, but I want to know what you think of the film and sort of where your journey with the Gill Man began. Right. I'm not exactly sure. You know, it's not quite as clear-cut as the rest of the monsters as to when exactly I became aware of the Gill Man, the Fish Monster Man, the Fish Man, you know, what, the Merman, what have you. It's real foggy. I was probably in like cartoons or something of that nature at first. And then eventually I ended up seeing this movie or maybe it was even the Monster Squad. You know, I think it took that movie. Like I had known of Dracula, the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster. But I think that movie, I was like, oh, what's the water creature doing here? What's his deal? That could possibly be like the first time that I had heard or, or seen a 
the fish monster himself. And since then, uh, I've been incredibly intrigued by him. You know, I think over the years, I had started reading like Lovecraft, right? So, oh, sure. Yep. That could have possibly influenced this creature in a lot of ways with like all the the shadow over Innsmouth and and other uh, various, very many fish related monsters in the Lovecraft mythos. The guy had a thing for fish. And I'd always loved the difference of the Gill Man, like the idea that he was in a different terrain, you know, he was underwater and everyone else was up on land. Like it, it just felt different and made him stand out a little more. I guess you could say sort of like an evil Aquaman to some degree, or maybe sure. a more misunderstood version of that kind of thing. So I'd always been really down with him. And of course, the design is just yep. incredible. You know, talk about standing the test of time, like and getting it right the first time. It's just incredible design. Now, I will say this just quickly in closing for this part that I was surprised that Universal would enter the atomic age without a oversized creature. You know, like they didn't have like a giant spider or a giant gorilla or anything like that. That they downsized. So I thought that was kind of unique and cool about this when thinking about it in a new way for the show. They did and they didn't. So they didn't have a lot of money to spend on B-movies, right? They were trying to be frugal, especially after the merger. This new regime really wanted to tighten their wallets a little bit, but still produce high quality stuff. And for a B-movie like this, this got heavy promotion, right? They wanted to do like a big release with it. But at the same time, how do you scale back the budget? Well, you know, you don't create a giant monster and need a lot of visual effects. Pretty much all of the money went into the Gilman suit. With some interesting financial gymnastics, they were able to put together an A picture with B material because of where they threw the money and how they marketed this movie. I think that was the trade-off. They get a smaller man-sized monster instead of a giant insect of some kind, but it looks really good. Yeah, and you also get the location, right? They must have spent a fortune on the underwater photography experts and all of that kind of thing. And like, that's all... I got to imagine like that's got to be a new thing to see in theaters for the most part, like this much of the movie taking place underwater. I feel like that is part of the draw here as well. You know, I mean, nowadays it might be the one thing that doesn't hold up quite as well because there's so much of it that they're just kind of like, check it out. Isn't this awesome? Look how much we're shooting underwater. But for the time, I could see it being quite an appeal to go see this movie. Oh, for sure. I mean, underwater cameras existed at that point. They're in the movie, right? It's not a weird thing to have underwater cameras. However, underwater movie cameras were kind of a new thing. And so, yeah, just having to figure that out, I'm sure was a huge challenge, but they did hire some really incredible talent to sort of help with that, which we'll get into. My origin with the Gill Man or the idea of this like sort of half fish, half man monster is similar to yours. You know, I was thinking back to childhood. I hadn't seen the Monster Squad until I became an adult. You know, it wasn't something that we had on the house growing up. There was no Creature from the Black Lagoon or Gill Man cereal like there was a Count Chocula and Frankenberry, right? He was somehow excluded from that group. And there really weren't many cartoons that I could think of that incorporated like a Gill Man. However, I did remember, like as we've discussed on the show, in earlier episodes, I'm a big fan of the Munsters. We had the Munsters on the TV in my house, and Uncle Gilbert was a Gilman. I always forget about that guy. What the heck? <laughs> yeah, so the Munsters had uh, what was probably my first exposure to a Gilman type monster. Beyond that, whenever I discovered Creature from the Black Lagoon, whenever I watched that, it's been so long, I don't even remember when I first saw it. It's just been this movie outside of the Munsters, which is interesting because people really love the Gilman. There are countless vampire movies, countless werewolf movies. There's a whole series of Invisible Man movies and, and other TV shows and, and what have you. But the Gilman 
Aquaman? There's three movies, right? He's got a trilogy with Universal. But beyond that, that's kind of it. We got lucky with Shape of Water a couple years ago. Clearly inspired by Creature from the Black Lagoon. But I think what Creature's legacy is, is where you see it in other movies. It's influences. You know, I mentioned Steven Spielberg. Jaws certainly would not be the same movie if not for Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, so that weighed heavy on me this time watching it. I was like, wow, this feels like Jaws and a lot of like the tension, the music, right? Like yep. the tagline to this movie should have been just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. This is not the movie I associate with, you know, being afraid to get in the water. That's always going to be Jaws. But I wonder if in 1954, audiences responded in a similar way as they did in the 70s with Jaws. Yeah, it makes you wonder if Spielberg might have seen this as a kid in the drive-in during a re-release or like heard about it from his parents or something. And then that could have, you know, led to the inspiration of Jaws or something, but clearly something about this clicked with him because there is a lot of homage of this movie in that movie. Yeah, so Steven Spielberg is old enough to have seen Creature from the Black Lagoon in theaters. And what's interesting about this time in history is that, you know, the movies like Dracula and Frankenstein, there was no home entertainment. You had to go to the movies to see them in like second run, third run screenings. Kids growing up in the 50s probably hadn't seen Dracula, hadn't seen the Wolfman, you know, and so to see the creature from the Black Lagoon, he was like the universal monster. You know, Steven Spielberg was born in 1946. This came out in 54. He would have been like eight years old. Yeah, that's perfect age. I'd be surprised if he hadn't seen this uh, in its original theatrical release. But my point being is that I think the legacy of Creature from the Black Lagoon is less about the character and more about how this one particular movie has influenced others over time. That is really interesting that like this hasn't been remade over and over like there aren't any hammer horror versions of this guy you know there aren't any 80s or 90s versions of him there almost was an 80s remake of creature from the black again the rumor is that it was going to be directed by john carpenter oh I forget who designed the creature for that version, but it never got off the ground. So it never happened, but we got close. He is a very striking creature. He doesn't necessarily have like a name, like all that. He's like kind of still an enigma, you know? And it's really, I think, a uh, testament to, especially this movie, that it's still the definitive version at this point. That's really wild. I really love Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's it's a perfect movie. It's not overly complex. You know, its plot is pretty simplistic and it draws from some pretty obvious influences, which we'll get to. But I think it's just a perfect little adventure film that the creature looks gorgeous. We'll probably talk about that a hundred times. One or two things that really struck me about this film that also kind of came to mind about the atomic age kind of thing is like, I got a big Forbidden Planet or Thing from Another World vibe with these movies where there's a whole crew, all of this kind of like arguing between each other and everything just kind of falls apart and then there's like one main creature around haunting them the other thing even though it doesn't have the size physically there's a lot of king kong infused in these atomic age movies as well right, where you right. just kind of have the creature going after the damsel situation and then all these like very macho men trying to upstage each other to rescue her uh, and that's all fun it's just uh something that stood out to me about this movie you know now that we're watching them in order it feels so different than everything we've watched prior to this much like those movies i mentioned like it, it's much brighter you could see everything very clearly i appreciated kind of seeing the new wave if you will of filmmaking grammar being 
put into play in the universal horror area that was kind of fun to see it's like it's just a very different type of movie than we've been getting you know looking back on everything we've talked about so far do you feel like the creature fits in among the others in this this little motley group I think it does ultimately because it still maintains the staples of what made the original stuff so strong, which is like we're going to an exotic location. We're going to be fighting on the monster's terms in a lot of ways. It's very much still kind of about the other uh, and like our fear of the other and what that represents. And this one, I think even more so because it goes back to like the beginning of existence, right? In storytelling terms, it's still very much true to universe i think just in the visual style and and things like that in acting style it's just a different type of acting we're at at this point i don't think there's anything wrong with that it's just uh, something that i noticed is like a noticeable difference to me yeah for sure this one actually for me feels a lot more like the early universal monsters in the vibe that i get from it not necessarily the styles like you said it's in bright daylight and it's underwater it does a lot of things that those original movies don't do but there's something about it it's got a sympathetic monster right somebody we can root for there's just something about it that speaks to me on that same level as like the the original frankenstein and dracula and and the Wolfman. I agree. I think that this monster and this trilogy here definitely fits in. He's just a new monster for a new age. Yeah, I think what also helps is that like he's ancient, right? Like a lot of those old creatures like Dracula and stuff. And it's not right. like a bomb dropped on this thing and he transformed. There's nothing wrong with that either. But like I like that they took this route and that makes it feel more in-house to me. Yes. You know, that yes. makes it feel like it fits into play a lot better. Yes. All right. Well, let's get into it here. So I took a bunch of notes. Most of my notes came from Mallory O'Meara's book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, which if you haven't read that, you should absolutely check it out. It's not that long of a read. I read it in about a week and a half. And that was me reading like only an hour a day. So if you're a quick reader, you'll get through it in no time. It's a great book about Millicent Patrick, who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. We'll get into her story eventually, but I want to give all credit to Mallory O'Meara for writing that awesome book. Also a little bit from The Creature Chronicles by Tom Weaver, also a great book to check out if you're into The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So without further ado, the genesis of Creature from the Black Lagoon can be traced all the way back to a dinner party in 1941. During the filming of Citizen Kane, Orson Welles hosted actor William Allen, who was a member of Welles Mercury Theater, who played the unseen reporter Jerry Thompson at the center of Kane. Oh. Yeah, the guy you never see, but he's the yeah. one going around trying to figure out what Rosebud means. It was a dinner party with William Allen, as well as Mexican cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa and Mexican actress Dolores Del Rio. During dinner, Figueroa shared a story about a local legend involving a half-man, half-fish creature that lived in the Amazon. According to the legend, this creature would appear once every year to claim a young virgin woman, and this ritual would keep the village safe for another year. What's funny to me about this story is that apparently... Figueroa fully believed that this thing existed. To him, it wasn't just a story. You know, it wasn't like the Jersey Devil. It was a thing that actually existed out in in the Amazon wilderness. Fast forward about 10 years. Around this time, J. Arthur Rank, who was the founder of the Rank organization, which had acquired Universal in a merger in 1946, he had lost interest in the picture business after a couple years and sold his remaining shares to investor Milton Rackmill, co-founder of Decca Records. Oh. Decca would eventually take full control of Universal by 1950. 
1952. By this time, William Allen had become a writer and a producer at Universal. And once the studio decided to get in on the sci-fi game, it was the perfect time to revisit that story from nearly a decade prior. Drawing from Beauty and the Beast, King Kong, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, which is also an influence on King Kong, go figure, Allen began with a treatment about an ill-fated fish man falling for a beautiful woman entitled The Sea Monster. Oh, cool. Now, this treatment was passed off to radio writer Maurice Zim. This was his first time writing for film. Expanding on Allen's original concept, Zim crafted a 59-page story about a rich heiress who funds a scientific expedition into the Amazon and is kidnapped by the Pisces Man. That's kind of cool. Right? And the Pisces Man is ultimately hunted down by the explorers and is eaten by a school of piranha. Oh, I like that. We should yeah. have gotten that ending. Yeah, I imagine that would have been really expensive to shoot, but it would have been fun. Piranhas are my favorite. Despite still needing a lot of work, Universal execs liked the idea and passed Zim's work on to screenwriters Leo Lieberman and Arthur Ross to refine it further. Their version was mostly a straightforward monster movie that significantly reduced the role of the female lead, essentially doing away with the whole Beauty and the Beast angle that William Allen really wanted, but it was good enough for Universal to greenlight it for pre-production. Now with the title, The Black Lagoon. William Allen and Arthur Ross could not have disagreed more over what this script should be. Allen insisted on that romantic angle between the monster and the female lead, so he took Ross's script and handed it off to Harry Essex, with whom he had just worked on It Came From Outer Space, to write the final draft. The female lead was once again built up, she was given more agency, and of course, it included that emotional relationship with the monster. When speaking to author Tom Weaver for the book The Creature Chronicles, Arthur Ross got to tell his side of that. He said, quote, Alan wanted to put in more of the woman. Here comes this big creature with his cock four feet long. He's going to fuck her. <laughs> and she gets away just in time. But she does think about him. I had done as much Beauty and the Beast as I thought it was correct to do. Because essentially, that wasn't the story. The fact that the creature was attracted to the woman was not the reason he fought back. But Bill wanted more of the King Kong element and creature. So Harry Essex came in. Really, all he did was add more of the girl. Underwater shots, the creature sees her, the creature gets an erection. I rather felt that the nature of the creature's relationship to the woman in the picture was quite simplistic end quote wow yeah i wondered why she goes for that swim at some point i guess we'll get there finally alan and essex took their finished scripts to post-production supervisor ernest nims for one last polish before it was sent off to the production code administration to be scrutinized by our favorite buzzkill joseph breen Ooh, we got to make sure it's about that guy. Like, we hate Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to argue with that. As you can imagine, Breen took issue with what he viewed as suggestions of bestiality. Oh, let me guess, the uh, four-foot erection. So, getting there. He made sure director Jack Arnold knew in no uncertain terms that there was to be no sexuality in any of the scenes with the creature and Kay, especially after he carries off to his underwater grotto. He was also concerned with what the creature would look like, specifically the anatomy. So, I guess it's possible he got a hold of the original Arthur Ross script. Yeah. So this became a concern, of course. Maybe he got a couple early sketches of the creature and was like, there's one thing we got to get the big eraser. I mean, I can't imagine this ever becoming an issue at any stage in production in the 50s. I think that was maybe Arthur Ross making jokes during the the interview. But the studio assured Joseph Breen that none of those things would be an issue. And so pre-production forged ahead. One of the first real financial decisions that was made was whether to shoot in black and white or color. And then whether to also shoot in 3D, which was a hot new thing at the time. Yeah, I totally forgot. We're coming at you in 3D tonight. 
To give you some idea of how it all would have affected the budget, shooting in black and white would have made the total budget about $600,000, which would be around $5.5 million today. Black and white 3D would have made it $650,000. Color, $670,000. And color 3D, $750,000. Perhaps inspired by the success of 1953's House of Wax, it was decided that the film would be shot in 3D, but to help keep costs low, it would still be in black and white. Okay, so I need some help here because I've never seen a black and white 3D movie. Are the principles the same? I mean, is it still just shooting with two cameras overlapping? But I, I always thought that color had something to do with the effect. But it's interesting to learn it doesn't. It kind of like was all new to me when I because I totally forgot that this was released in 3D. It still works on the same principle. So everything's sort of outlined in the the sort of red and blue lines. I've never seen Creature in 3D either. I, I've been dying to see it. I know some theaters will show it. And, and if it ever comes through my neck of the woods, I definitely want to go do it. But as far as I understand, the 3D effect works the same way, whether it's in color or black and white. Okay. So Jack Arnold, who had just worked with William Allen and Harry Essex on It Came From Outer Space in 3D, was a natural choice to direct. Yeah, I've seen a lot of his movies. He was the son of Russian immigrants, and he read a lot of science fiction as a kid. No surprise. He dreamed of one day becoming an actor. As an adult, he worked in vaudeville and on Broadway. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, he enlisted for pilot training. Due to a shortage of planes, he was temporarily placed in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, where he took a crash course in cinematography and learned filmmaking technique on various military films. Following the war, he started his own film production company, making fundraising films for various nonprofits as well as numerous documentaries. But by the 1950s, he was making science fiction films, which would ultimately be his claim to fame. In addition to It Came From Outer Space and Creature From the Black Lagoon, Arnold also directed Tarantula, which was also produced by William Allen, and The Incredible Shrinking Man, among others yeah and personal favorite this island earth yes that is so close to deserving to be in the monster box set it's not even funny you know i've seen it included among those characters before so it's like he, he's kind of an honorary member of the universal monsters in a weird way but just never gets included in the box sets no but i've got my eyes on him so maybe <laughs> So now the fun part, designing the creature. Initially, William Allen thought that the creature suit could be designed by the props department with sculptors from the makeup department crafting only hands, feet, and a head. After two months of development, what they had was essentially a bodysuit made of stretchy fabric, not unlike a morph suit. It had a few scales, not many. The head and skin were smooth, and the feet were little more than a big pair of flippers. Needless to say, everybody hated it. Well, everybody but William Allen. Apparently, he preferred this suit for the rest of his life. Wow, no kidding. It's the most ugly suit I think I've ever seen. It looks like something you would buy in like a Halloween store. I will link to it in the show notes so that everyone can get a look at it, but it looks atrocious. If you just Google Creature from the Black Lagoon test suit, it might show up. There was some talk of possibly reusing this design for a sequel in which the creature would find a mate. However, this idea ultimately never materialized. Okay, I just saw the picture, Dan, and I'm, I want to cry so hard. <laughs> okay, this looks like they just never intended to show him full body, right? And it's yeah. like we never would have gotten that amazing shot with the spotlight where he basically stands up and like takes a bow and you can see him in all of his glory. You know? Right, 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 right. He looks like an E.T. knockoff or something. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's real weird. So with the props department unable to deliver, the creature now fell to the makeup department. Enter Millicent Patrick. By this point in her career, Millicent had been an animator at Disney. She would claim to be Disney's first, although there's some debate over that. She worked on 
Fantasia for Disney, specifically designing Chernabog for the sequence Night on Bald Mountain. No way. Oh, wow. That thing is horrifying. (laughs) She was also a promotional model and an actor, all uncredited background roles. She became the first woman to work in a special effects makeup department after showing department head Bud Westmore some of her sketches while on an acting job. Prior to Creature from the Black Lagoon, her contributions for the makeup department included part of the alien creatures in It Came from Outer Space. And check this out. I didn't know this when we recorded it, but she also designed the masks for Mr. Hyde in Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, do you think she did the mouse man too? I don't know if she did the mouse, but she definitely designed Hyde. Hyde looked great in that movie, so... He did. After studying prehistoric reptiles, amphibians, and fish from the Devonian period and spending weeks on various designs, Patrick eventually landed on the creature design we know today. There were little variations here and there, of course, including one with a tail, another one with an anglerfish-style protrusion coming from his head, and there were a couple different head designs, all of which were sculpted and molded for screen testing, but it was mostly what we see in the finished film. I love it. Like, he almost looks like a mini Godzilla to a degree, except for the face right like he's got the fins on the back and oh yeah. man I, he's just so cool with all the plates and, and everything like the ribbed plates that he has and it's, it looks like armor so dope it looks so organic i think out of all the creatures this would fool kids the most to be like where did they find this? How did they film this? How did they train this thing on screen? It's impressive. I, I didn't realize it beforehand, but it makes sense. This was like the first time I think anybody had really constructed a full body suit for a monster. It also had to go underwater. This, yeah, was, yeah. this was like a, a monster undertaking, pardon the pun. There's no space inside for the actor to wear a mask or an oxygen tank. There's nothing. So this thing like fit like a glove and I think that's why it works so well. It's wild like not only with the sort of false start with the suit I'm getting like Predator vibes from it you know mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. they had famously cast Van Damme originally and the suit was like terrible and then they made it amazing. They didn't have like kind of similar looks going on. Millicent Patrick's designs were then given to sculptors Jack Keevan and Chris Mueller where more issues needed to be worked out from creating two different size suits for the actors playing the creature. There were two if you didn't already know that we're going to talk about them in a little bit. They had to figure out how each of them would see through the mask, how to keep the foam latex suits submerged, all kinds of things. So to make the suits, plaster casts were made of each of the actors, and then those designs were sculpted onto the molds made from those casts. Then the clay sculptures were cast as molds, which were then filled with foam latex, and then the foam latex was baked, dried, painted, and assembled so that it could finally be worn. These suits were skin tight and required two to three hours to get in and out of. Wow. It sounds like that show Face Off on the Sci-Fi Channel. You know, do the sculpting and the molding and all this and the latex and this and that. And I don't think there were really many pieces to it. Like today, it might be like a composite, like there'd be all these different pieces that they have to attach, right? To make it easier to get in. But because this had to like go underwater and had people swim around, I think it all had to be one piece. It kind of functioned as like a wetsuit after a little bit. And you see him 360 every time he's on screen pretty much so it can't be like one suit has the zipper in the front and one one suit has the zipper in the back because like you see front and back just about every time he's on screen yeah diver and stuntman riku browning tested it in a pool on the universal lot tried out all the different heads and the rest is history less than a month after the hideous original suit was rejected universal's makeup department managed to crank out an entirely new suit that was ready to go before the cameras i read somewhere that the original plan was to keep the creature hidden 
didn't until about halfway through. But considering how labor intensive and expensive that suit was to create, that's why they decided to introduce him much earlier. I can't blame him for that. No, probably the best thing this movie could have done is sort of say like, here it is, check it out and like, see if you could kind of handle this. So I've got a side note here. We talk about Bud Westmore a lot as the head of makeup uh, post Jack Pierce, but Bud Westmore hated just about everything about this production. He hated the Beauty and the Beast style storyline. He thought the creature wasn't scary enough and he hated that the whole movie was shot in bright daylight rather than have the creature lurking in the shadows. He had no problem expressing these thoughts publicly. That is until the film and the creature started testing well with audiences. In fact, in a move that would be unheard of today, Universal sent Millicent Patrick, a makeup artist, on a press tour to promote the film. Not the actors, they sent the makeup artist. It was called The Beauty Who Created the Beast, even though Bud did everything he could to make sure he got full credit for the creature design, including changing the name of the tour to The Beauty Who Lives with the Beast, the fan mail for Millicent came piling in anyway. And by the time she returned from the press tour, Bud had Millicent pulled from every project she had been working on and refused to hire her for more work. And she never designed another monster again. But the rest of her work can be seen in William Allen and Jack Arnold's next film, This Island Earth. She, in fact, designed the Metaluna Mutant, also built by Jack Keevan and Chris Mueller. Wow. And in The Mole People, for which she was the mask maker. Excellent. All right, cool. I mean... It just sucks that, like, you know, they sent her out on this press tour, and when she starts to get, like, kind of famous for being the name behind the movie, like, yeah, I'm sure that pissed him off to know. One thing I didn't know beforehand is that Bud Westmore came from, like, a pretty important family in the industry. The Westmores were, like, the family of makeup artists Uh, so for universal it was like a big deal that they had a westmore running their makeup department there's a whole story about it in the lady from the black lagoon one of his brothers was the original choice for universal but that brother had an alcohol problem and so bud he managed to get him to drink a little bit and then sent him to the interview so he wouldn't get the job and then you know universal said all right well bud will hire you the more I learned about Bud Westmore, the more I just started to hate his guts. He was not a nice guy, and he got his just desserts later in life. Once it became sort of standard practice for the actors to have their own personal makeup artists. Oh, okay. A lot of times, you know, they'll have the people they like to work with. The studios were more willing to work with like independent contractors, but they were so unwilling to part with the prestigious Westmore name for a while that they ultimately were okay letting Millicent go and keeping him. Well, fortunately, the book on Millicent has been written. Okay, so moving forward, we can give her the credit that she is due. And that is, uh, that's awesome. So production started in September 1953, lasted three weeks, not including some finishing touches and extra footage for the opening reel. Up until this point, the film was still titled The Black Lagoon, but by November it had been changed to Creature from the Black Lagoon, which William Allen hated. He thought it sounded cheesy and cheap. Otherwise, it just kind of sounds like a nature thing, like the Black Lagoon, like the Blue Lagoon, or there's... No evidence that it would be a horror movie. Let me give you some of William Allen's, quote, non-cheesy and cheap-sounding title suggestions. Okay. I like the Pisces man, personally. (laughs) William Allen suggested, It came from out of the sea, the demon of the deep. That's not bad. The sea demon, the river of terror. It walks the sea. But we're not in the sea. Like, we got to get out of that mindset. Like, we're, we're in the Amazon. An additional alternate title that was not William Allen's, I'm not entirely sure who suggested this one, but it was a possible title, The Web and the Claw. I don't like that either. 
All right. This film had two production units because it was shot both at Universal City using their Park Lake on the back lot for the on-water sequences and another unit for all of the underwater sequences at Silver Springs, Florida. Now, I had heard that Peter Stackpole, one of the original staff photographers for Life magazine who specialized in underwater photography, had consulted on those sequences, but I couldn't find anything concrete to substantiate that. So take that with a grain of salt. I tend to believe it because the underwater footage is so beautiful, but you know, like I said, I can't confirm it. Yeah, so much underwater footage, but also good. Yes. I really don't feel like that technology has come any further than James Cameron's underwater technology isn't really that much better than what they were using back then. As I mentioned earlier, two men played the creature. Originally, Universal wanted Glenn Strange to play the part. Oh. Strange had no interest in being submerged in that foam rubber suit for hours on end. Yeah, I don't blame him. He passed. It seems like you would need a diver or a professional swimmer of some kind to do this. Someone who could hold their breath for five minutes, that kind of guy. Yes. So one of the two actors was Riku Browning, who was the stuntman who originally tested that suit underwater. He began his career doing water shows and performing in underwater newsreels in Wakula Springs, Florida in the 1940s. When the location scouts came to town, they asked Browning for some help. According to him, quote, their cameraman asked if I could swim in front of the cameras so they could get the perspective of the size of a human being against the fish in the grass. So I did, end quote. Days later, they ended up offering him the role of the monster, which he accepted. He later reprised his role in both sequels, Revenge of the Creature and The Creature Walks Among Us, receiving no on-screen credit for any of them, uh, unfortunately. Wow. Despite asking, I have found this out about him. He did ask for credit when he came back for Revenge of the Creature, and they still said no. Wow. Quick question about him. They still said no credit even after setting him on fire in the monster suit and then tossing him into the water. I don't know if that was him or not for that specific shot or if it was the other actor or if it was a third stunt actor altogether. I think it was because the studio really wanted to sort of maintain the illusion that the creature was not played by an actor. Okay, so like we're talking about the monster played by question mark. Right. Okay. It seems silly now because we've talked about this on the show before. We just love stuntmen and, and definitely think that these people should be given their due credit. So thank God for IMDB and these sort of internet databases that allow people people access to this information. Later in his career, he would direct underwater sequences for Thunderball, Around the World Under the Sea, Caddyshack, Never Say Never Again, and others. I love how Caddyshack is thrown in there. So that sort of became his thing. He became sort of the underwater consultant. And, you know, I'm a big James Bond fan, so I love that he worked on Thunderball. So much of that movie is underwater. There's a whole battle sequence underwater. Love it. So the other actor who played the creature was Ben Chapman. Chapman was a Marine Corps veteran of the Korean War and was working as a real estate executive when he was approach to play the creature, mainly because of his large size at six foot five inches tall. He plays the creature for all the land scenes. Okay, okay. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. I don't know why they had two different actors. I guess because Riku Browning was a smaller guy. I think he was shorter by about five inches and they wanted somebody yeah. large to stand next to the human actors that they had. Yeah, it is kind of funny. It never really occurred to me until now that he is so graceful in the water and he is just, you know, he's so stiff on land. Yeah. Like, Two different actors. Like, if yeah. that would make sense. But, like, I didn't even realize in the movie it didn't make any difference. Apparently, if you pay, like, real close attention to the suits, you can tell there are, like, extra panels of scales and shit. Oh, okay. To account for the extra five inches on Ben Chapman. Oh, cool. Unlike many of Universal's horror films up to this point, Creature from the Black Lagoon has a lot of music in it. I can't remember the specific amount, but I want to say it's somewhere around 70% of the movie has music playing through it. And there's that one cue over and over. Over again. Yes. 
Yeah. In addition to some pieces from The Wolfman, Frankenstein, and some other library scores, Creature also used original music from three different composers, Henry Mancini, Hans J. Salter, and Herman Stein. Oh, Henry Mancini. Nice. Yeah. Now, Mancini, who most people would probably associate with the Pink Panther or Peter Gunn nowadays, he composed the lighter, more whimsical music for which he was known. Stein took the opening and closing credits, as well as some of the underwater sequences, and Salter handled all of the more horrifying moments moments that's pretty a cool idea like to have three different composers to get those different vibes you know each have yep. to work on one thing specifically and then put them all together and they're bound to create an interesting contrast but i have to imagine that has like a high margin of error right it's almost a miracle to me that the score works as well as it does and it's not the most unpleasant thing to listen to it's three composers plus library scores no coherence whatsoever well i think that right there might be why it worked so well is because there's already kind of a mismatch vibe about it going on and i would think that audiences at the time were probably used to that by now where they're like oh i've heard this music in so many movies you don't know what's new anymore and it's just like new cues old cues throw them all in there (laughs) you don't don't need to even equalize it all or be in the same key I don't know. I dig it. I like that they took a chance on that. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it works. Like, it's not something that I noticed, right? Like I said, it's a miracle that it works as well as it does. If I didn't know that it was a composite score, I never would have necessarily guessed it, but it's still pretty cool. Creature premiered on February 12th, 1954, and then officially opened on March 5th. But prior to its release, audiences got a small taste of the creature through a gag appearance on the Colgate Comedy Hour, where he met Abbott and Costello. No, he didn't. Are you kidding me? On TV? Yes. (laughs) This is unfortunate. Unfortunately, the only time Abbott and Costello ever got to meet the creature from the Black Lagoon, people got to see him in a sketch with Abbott and Costello before the movie released. And I think that was another marketing strategy, right? Just get him out there. That was super smart. That would be like tossing him in a Disney Plus show before giving him his own feature film now in the Marvel Universe or something. But then, I mean, this only means one thing is like, we got to watch that. (laughs) We got to find it. So the film was a box office smash, making $1.3 million domestically. And of course, Bud Westmore began referring to the creature as his, quote, bread and butter monster, end Hmm. quote. It was really the only one they were using anymore at this point. A few years later, the powers that be at Decca Records decided to cease production of B-movies entirely, choosing to focus their efforts only on big-budget, big-name commercial films and eventually make their way into the next great media frontier, television. But fortunately for us, not before giving us two more creature movies and one last Abbott and Costello horror comedy. So thankfully, we have a couple more movies. This is not the end of the road. Not quite. So let's get into the cast real quick before we start talking about the movie proper. We've got Richard Carlson as Dr. David Reed. Carlson was an American actor, TV, and film director and screenwriter. He made his Broadway debut in a 1935 production of Three Men on a Horse before joining the Pasadena Playhouse in the late 30s. He did a combination of film and stage work through the early 1940s before serving in the U.S. Navy during World War II. After the war, Acting jobs were fewer, so he turned to writing and taking smaller supporting roles where he could, but it was in the early 50s that he cemented himself as a sci-fi staple, appearing as the leading man in 1953's The Magnetic Monster, followed by The Maze, It Came From Outer Space, and, of course, Creature from the Black Lagoon. I like this guy. He's got real leading man qualities. He's very charming, good-looking, all that kind of stuff. I like this guy, and one other thing I like about him is that he was in an Elvis movie at one point. I haven't seen that Elvis movie yet, Change of Habit, but it's either, you know, with me, Dan, if you've ever been in a Batman anything or an Elvis something, <laughs> I get excited. 
Right. Julie Adams plays Kay Lawrence. After being crowned Miss Little Rock at the age of 19, Julie Adams moved to Hollywood to pursue an acting career. Originally Betty Mae Adams, she changed her name to Julia and ultimately Julie when she began working for Universal International. Her first movie role was a minor part in Red Hot and Blue in 1949. And after The Creature from the Black Lagoon, she co-starred in a number of films with many of Hollywood's leading men, including Jimmy Stewart in Bend of the River, Rock Hudson in The Lawless Breed, Tyrone Power in The Mississippi gambler and charlton heston in the private war of major benson and elvis presley in tickle me (laughs) so looking forward to that in the 1960s she transitioned to tv making guest appearances on the andy griffith show perry mason and alfred hitchcock presents and then later on the incredible hulk cagney and Lacey, and many others i'll take it lots of hulk talk on this show so very cool gotta track down that episode watch it richard denning plays mark williams Despite plans to inherit his father's garment manufacturing business, Denning developed an interest in acting at an early age, probably disappointing his dad to no end. That sounds like when Lon Chaney Sr. wanted his son to be a plumber. Yes. No, Dad, I want to be an actor. And it's like, get out. He began acting in minor and supporting background roles through the 1930s and 40s before enlisting in the U.S. Navy before the war. Following the war, Denning was unemployed for a year and a half, living in a mobile home with his family before Paramount offered him more work. His first job back was a starring role on the CBS radio sitcom My Favorite Husband, playing opposite Lucille Ball. Wow. This show, which ran for 124 episodes from 1948 to 1951, is what eventually evolved into I Love Lucy. No kidding. He's the original Ricky? Yes, but Ricky Ricardo was not a character yet. He had a, a different name. So basically mm-hmm. they, t- they took the premise of My Favorite Husband, wrote it for television, and then swapped him out for Ricky Ricardo. Wow, for Lucy's real life husband. For Desi Arnaz, yep. Crazy. Much like Richard Carlson, Richard Denning would also become something of an icon of the 1950s sci-fi genre. In addition to Creature from the Black Lagoon, he also starred in Target Earth, Day the World Ended, Creature with the Atom Brain, and The Black Scorpion, among others. Was he in an Elvis movie, Mike? Not that I could see, but he apparently was in Animal House somewhere. Knowing John Landis, like I'm sure he tried to sneak in as many old Universal actors into his films as possible. Antonio Moreno plays Dr. Carl Maya. Moreno was a Spanish-born actor and director of the silent era through the 1950s. Oh. He was born in Madrid in 1887 and moved to New York in 1901 before settling in Massachusetts to finish his education. He began acting in local productions before moving to Hollywood in 1912, and by 1914, he was starring in a series of highly successful serials from Vitagraph and became a highly regarded matinee idol, appearing alongside Tyrone Powers Sr. and Gloria Swanson. Wow. In the 20s, he was starring opposite Greta Garbo in The Temptress. So he was a big deal as a silent film actor, especially being from Spain. But by the time sound pictures became more popular, his career began to lose steam, in part because of his heavy Spanish accent. Mm. He started making smaller Mexican films for a while, but by the 40s, he had begun rebuilding his career by becoming a character actor and his roles in Creature and John Ford's The Searchers are among his most well-known today. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't feel like he had like a heavy accent. I mean, maybe he was trying not to in this movie, but I love this actor. I thought this character was great. Like, there's just right from the beginning, kind of like brings a prestige to the role, you know, without even knowing that he was a prestigious actor already. I was like, wow, this guy commands the screen really well. 
He's great in this. Nestor Paiva plays Captain Lucas. Paiva was an American actor of Portuguese descent. In the early 30s, he was the director of the 8 O'Clock Players Troupe at KLX Radio in Oakland, California, where he appeared in a number of radio programs. Until the 60s, he did a variety of film and TV work, including The Lone Ranger, Get Smart, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, The Amy Griffith Show, The Beverly Hillbillies, and The Addams Family. But he is probably most well-known for his roles as Teo Gonzalez in Walt Disney's Spanish Western series Zorro, and as Lucas in Creature. Very cool. And he was also in something called They Saved Hitler's Brain. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Sounds pretty wild. (laughs) It's really awful. And there's two versions of it, actually. They have different titles, but with a lot of the same footage. Bizarre. Finally, Whit Bissell plays Edwin Thompson. Bissell was the son of a surgeon, and he began acting with the Carolina Playmakers during his time at the University of North Carolina. He later appeared on Broadway and in the Air Force show Winged Victory during his time as an airman in the U.S. Army Air Force. His film career began in the mid-40s, and he appeared in hundreds of films and TV shows as a character actor. He was another 50s sci-fi and horror staple, appearing in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, among others. Including one of my favorites of all time, Soylent Green. Very cool. I didn't get to fully look at his filmography. I know he looks familiar to me, but it could be from some of these other works, because he also appeared in The Kane Mutiny, The Manchurian Candidate, The Outer Limits, Man from Uncle. He was in the Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. Classic episode. Yep. And he also appeared on The Incredible Hulk TV series. Oh, right. We got two. I got to find those episodes. We might have to do some bonus episodes just from those. <laughs> so I couldn't find any information about them, but they're worth crediting because they're listed in the credits. Bernie Gozier plays Z and Henry Escalante plays Chico. They are the two sort of deckhands on the Rita as the team make their way through the Amazon. Yes, the ill-fated deckhands of the Rita. Okay, so with that, I think it's time to get into the movie itself. We, of course, open with the Universal International logo. So, Mike, I want to ask you real quick before we get too far into it. Do you own this, the Blu-ray? So, I don't own the Blu-ray, but I have it on DVD. I would imagine it's the same stuff. So, the Blu-ray comes with both the 2D and 3D versions. Oh, okay. Mine does not. Mine does not. I don't have a 3D television, and I imagine that that fad is probably not going to come back. I may need to go find one second or third hand if I want to enjoy the 3D aspect of this disc. I know it's meant to be played on like a 3D Blu-ray player. I see. I I think. And so it needs that 3D TV technology. So I might be SOL as far as that's concerned. But I was just curious. I own the disc. I've got the 3D version, but I'm unable to watch it. (laughs) A little bit disappointing. Well, it's cool to know that it's out there in that form as well the preserved in 3d so after we get through the opening credits here i mean this thing starts way back at the beginning of everything (laughs) which i think is a really interesting choice yeah well not quite everything he doesn't say the big bang but he does say the creation of planet earth which Mm -hmm. you know about 4.5 billion years ago (laughs) pretty far back there well they're actually going back to the bible i mean this narrator he starts by quoting genesis and that to me is one of the more interesting choices here because the movie essentially is an argument for evolution. However, it opens with a verse from the beginning of the Bible. Blasphemous. I'm sure Joseph Breen had no problem with the Bible being brought in, but it doesn't really jibe with the themes of the movie otherwise. For me, it's another connection to the original slate of monster films from Universal where they always liked to flirt with science versus religion, you know, in this case, creationism versus evolution and all that. So it's fun to see it 
here both mentioned kind of in the same film. Yeah. After a little bit of sort of explanation about these creatures that were formed in the ocean and they evolved over time, grew legs, walked uh, onto land, we end up in the Amazon, right? And we are introduced to Dr. Carl Maya, who is a geologist. And he's accompanied by like two sort of tribal looking men. Actually, there's four sort of native looking men. I thought these were his guides or his assistants. He would show up in a country and they would and he would hire some guys to help him, you know, traverse the dangerous terrain and all that kind of thing. So I, I had a feeling that like that's what was going on here. They were sort of his Sherpas, but not on a mountain. Right, right. Yeah. So the big deal here in this opening scene is they find this fossilized claw sticking out of the rock there. And I mean it's a big stony webbed fingered claw. There's no denying this thing is for real and I love how the movie just starts off right away we're going right into this thing and so he decides that he's got to take it back to the marine biology institute it's also in brazil someplace he's got to take it back to have it analyzed and as he makes that decision heads back to the tent we get our first sort of glimpse at the creature which is very early i mean this is within four minutes yeah we get the fossilized arm and then the creature's actual arm the living creature takes his arm out of the water and onto the land and sort of like presents itself and so at one point when I was watching this not this time because I know but I wondered at one point watching this like is he going to be missing an arm is that his arm they found fossilized like that could have been kind of cool or maybe he grew it back that was great to see the old one that was fossilized and then like oh there's a fresh one out there Yes, the movie wastes no time in establishing that this thing, whatever it is, is still out there. And so now we cut to the Marine Biology Institute and we get introduced to Kay Lawrence and Dr. David Reed. David's down under the water in his like scuba gear doing some scientific uh, stuff down there. Scuba science. Kind of nondescript scuba science. Yeah, it's actually kind of cool because this is setting up how we're going to be spending a lot of time underwater. Yep. And it's kind of getting into the boring minutia of diving as best it can, making it exciting, I guess. And it's funny how he surfaces and they have to wait before they come up so they don't get the bends or whatever. And yep. the one guy's like, why is he waiting? What's going on here? <laughs> so this is all kind of fun business that they're taking care of. Yeah. So in this scene, Dr. Maya approaches Dr. Reed with the photograph of that claw and explains to him what he found out there in the wilderness and that he needs his expertise to kind of find out more about it because like i said dr maya is a geologist and dr reed is an ichthyologist which is the study of fish right he studies fish and other kinds of marine life and so it's going to be like a collaboration and they're going to figure out what it could be and i think that's pretty cool yeah and i like david as a character and i think him and Kay are involved on some level and you know they're going to be romantic with each other later i'm fine with that i'm also especially happy that there's no love triangle in this one like it's just the two of them that's cool they're off to the side there is sort of well not with mark certainly but perhaps you think with mark oh yeah i don't know i think he's there for the money and the fame and the fortune and they could be bait for all he's concerned but (laughs) there's a moment later on where Kay expresses maybe a little bit of worry for david as he goes out into the lagoon and then mark before they head down is like i hope you're worried about me too Kay." and she's like of course you know like the whole movie it's like this dick measuring contest between Mark and David. We'll get into it. I certainly believe that Kay is a factor 
factor in that. Okay. For both men. I read that 100%. Interesting that I didn't, that I see Mark, we haven't even introduced him yet and we're talking so much about it, but like he can't see past his own reflection. He's in love with himself, that kind of thing. But I think maybe just to be in competition with David as well, he's doing that kind of stuff. Like I never got the sense that he really had true feelings for Kay, but maybe it was just like, you know, if David wants her, I want her to kind of situation. I don't think Kay entertains Mark's advances. You know, I don't think it's a love triangle in that way, but I definitely think Mark is, well, you know, we should just get into the next scene because we're going to meet Mark. Okay. Dr. Mark Williams is kind of David and Kay's boss. I don't think he like heads the Institute, but he's definitely a guy in some position of authority over them. He also seems to have like a lot of money involved in all of this and so he has his say but he also isn't without like experience you know like he's right there next to David with the dagger in their waistband with their short shorts diving around looking for this thing yes but it becomes abundantly clear very quickly to borrow a phrase from the movie Twister he's in it for the money not the science that's a good comparison because their relationship is like they're the opposite side of the same coin kind of like mm-hmm. David is like the nice brown-haired one and Mark is like the mean blonde guy, you know? So it's like, it's totally that dynamic going on. Mark's whole thing is he wants the prize. And for most of this movie, it is the Gill Man. But to bring it back to Kay, I think in large part, like his relationship to her is that he wants her however he can get her. And it's not clear to me that she's interested at all. She's all in on David. But I think there is a sort of a weird love triangle there, even if it's only pretty one-sided from Mark's perspective. So anyway, we meet Mark in this scene. We get a look at the claw. Right away, Mark is interested in the notoriety, right? The fame and the money that they could get from discovering the rest of this thing. And David really just wants to study, right? He wants to learn more about what this thing is, where it came from, how it evolved, so on and so forth. The differences become abundantly clear very quickly. I love David, especially later, he's going to kind of come back around to the same notion as his argument where he's like, just think of what we can learn from this. Think of how it change space travel whoa wait what truly we are in the atomic age now but like i was not expecting that to come out of his mouth like as one of the first benefits of this discovery you know like sure down the line but he gets into all like aside from space the last great unknown is the depth of the ocean so whatever we can learn will surely help us explore planets and you know with our own evolution we look back to see where we're going i'm like this is awesome. I totally forgot all of this kind of heavy sci-fi stuff was injected into this movie. For sure. And I mean, what he's saying is still true today, which is kind of cool. Like, we still know more about space than we do about our own oceans. So like, what is it almost, let's see, 1954, almost 80 years later, we still know more about space than we do about our own oceans. So yeah, still very relevant today. So Mark agrees to lead this expedition back down into the Amazon and this little happy team, they're all going to head down there in just a few minutes. But meanwhile, we head back to camp. While Dr. Maya is at the Institute, his crew is still back at the uh, excavation site. And this is like our first big like horror sequence of the movie. We've got our two crewmen getting ready to wind down in their tent. And then suddenly this webbed claw comes creeping through the front of the tent. We never actually get to see the creature here. It's all done from the victim's perspectives. We see like the claw reach toward one of the guy's faces. We hear this awful inhuman roaring coming from the tent. It's incredibly well executed. I love this sequence. Yeah, this part's awesome. I, I was getting heavy Friday the 13th part. Yeah. It's like all point of view from the killer. Yep. That was cool. Uh, we also, we get when the hand comes out, we get the horn stick 
thing. The da, da, da. We're going to get that a lot. A new ringtone soon. <laughs> and the creature kills two people here. He kills Luis and Tomas, right? Yes. I, yeah. And so that was a shock too, where it's like the first guy goes down, the other guy comes in to see like, what's going on in here? And like, he gets taken out too. It's like, damn, this creature's strong and angry that they're on his lawn. <laughs> now, fun fact, I talked about Steven Spielberg earlier. From what I heard, I think this was on the commentary. I think Tom Weaver does a commentary track for this. He mentioned that sound effect, that creature roar that we hear, yeah. was the same sound effect that was used in Duel, Steven Spielberg's first feature oh, film, no. Duel, when the truck at the end of the movie, when it falls down that cliffside. Yeah, when the truck dies. That's the same sound effect that they've like slowed down. So like it sounds more like a truck going down a hill than it does an animal. Like I love that even more than Jaws, this movie is now influencing Spielberg as early as Duel. I haven't seen it yet, but I wonder if he goes to see it in The Fableman. Like the opening scene, he's in the movies and he's watching this. That would be amazing. So now we're on the Rita. We've got Mark, David, Kay, Dr. Maya. And we get introduced to some new characters here. Captain Lucas, he kind of reminds me of Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen. You know, he's like this unshaven guy chomping on a cigar. He's much more jovial than Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, yeah. And later on, he's going to be a little more sort of menacing, I think, than Humphrey Bogart, too, at one point. Like when he like completely takes charge of the boat and whips out a machete. But before that, like, I totally love this guy. He's such a great riverboat captain. Mark wastes no time in sort of establishing his authority on this boat. He sort of pulls rank with Dr. Maya and with David. The first of many scenes where he'll he'll do that. But for the most part, this opening sequence is this group of people all kind of taking in the scenery. And, you know, it's, it's this beautiful set. I don't know how they transformed this universal backlot into like an Amazon river, but it's beautiful. I imagine maybe like parts of it are like the Tarzan set if they had that property at the time or some kind of other jungle adventure films that they were making in the past like they they had to have had like something to go shoot on you know for this kind of thing in the past I would assume but I agree that it looks so authentic it doesn't feel necessarily like a set in the way I would have imagined back then you know like it because it just seems so open and overgrown and the sound design as well truly helps kind of immerse you Totally. We have not mentioned that yet, but just a wall of sound that transports you there to the Amazon. You just close your eyes and you're there. Absolutely. And I think that that it being in black and white kind of helps. Let's say that some of this foliage is not obviously native to the Amazon, right? You know, maybe it's more North American greenery. You know, having it in black and white makes it less obvious. Maybe it's an oak tree, but doesn't look like one because it's in black and white. Yeah. And another thing kind of distracting me this time around is that they're all smoking a lot. Like in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, you don't really get too much of that unless it's a period piece. And then I forget, like that was just part of life. Just, you know, smoking in a children's film. Kids are going to this and being heavily influenced. And they're like, look, this explorer who captured the monster, he's a monster hunter. He smokes Marlboros. Yeah. I've been rewatching I Love Lucy at night, you know, before bedtime. And they smoked so many cigarettes on that show. I mean, that was also <laughs> early 1950s. Of course, they were sponsored by Philip Morris, which is why they smoked so many cigarettes. But still, I was like, wow, that's a lot of cigarettes. But yeah, man, early 50s, they were just 
smoking as much as possible. I think it's also possible that some of the background, the, some of the set, because a lot of it's rear projection. I would also guess that they did actually shoot some actual or, or use actual like Amazon footage for some of the sequences. Good call. Like they were definitely pulling some stock footage from time to time to establish. Right. Okay. So the first thing that they encounter on the river, they head back to Dr. Maya's excavation site. And of course, the first thing they see is the destroyed tent and the two workers that have been horribly murdered inside very bad sign you don't want to really come back to camp and see it destroyed with like your two friends murdered i would kind of just at that point be like we are not armed enough like we should go back right now for supplies what are we doing this is way worse than i was expecting yeah i think they suspect a jaguar i think one of them suggests that it might have been a jaguar or something that came in and are we ready to deal with a jaguar people like (laughs) We need more men and women. And of course, when all the men see this horrific sight, they ask Kay to hang back. And so while they're all trying to figure out what happened, Kay is standing right next to the water there and and the creature's arm comes back again and almost grabs her. Like, I love this scene. They just, they get a lot of mileage out of this one effect with just the arm coming out of the water. Right? I mean, this goes back to the thing I was wondering when I saw the original concept art for the design is like, did they ever intend to show the entire creature originally or was it all going to be sort of this like use your imagination to describe the rest of it to yourself i'm glad they don't but like it works so well that it's just an arm you know and this is like the third or fourth time we've seen it and it's so cool that it's like yeah i'm cool if it was just like the killer arm from the water but we're gonna get everything it's attached to also so it's gonna be better plus this gag we've seen this gag so much and it's always played for laughs pretty much and this is the first time they're doing the like i'm gonna get you you don't really feel me behind you but you know we just missed each other it's the first time i feel like they've really pulled it off you're right i think by this point that had been done so many times you're right it would have been sort of old hat but it does work really well here and i think it's because of how well that makeup was done that whole arm just looks so good it looks so believable so i I watched this with my girlfriend and, and she couldn't get over how good that makeup effect the Gilman suit was overall like i know this was made in 1954 but i think that that would look amazing today you know if somebody cranked that out today it's not that far off from the shape of water yeah if it's not broke don't fix it the design was great totally impressive yeah definitely sells that little gag there so now the excavation gets back underway these guys spend what like eight days digging through (laughs) the rock and and sifting through it just trying to find the remnants of the skeleton from that arm they find absolutely nothing it's wild that they spend eight days there too you'd think after like the third or fourth day they're like we should try another spot or you know do something else or something but now they're down there they're doing water science and you know lots of underwater footage and all that kind of stuff so they're really going at it after eight days or whatever mark's ready to hang it up and go back right but david is the one who convinces him that it's worth sticking around he has this idea that over time you know like over thousands of years the rock that they're digging through pieces of it could have drifted down that river the water could have carried it down into a tributary or you know or something and so he asks captain lucas about where does this river go and that's where we hear for the first time that it empties into this black lagoon he says it's called a paradise by the people that he knows except no one's ever returned to prove it yeah it sounds pretty dark to me it's that place 
no one ever comes back from. Well, all right. <laughs> it's ominous, but it's beautiful. You know, I get a beautiful burial site. So now faced with the possibility of potentially not wasting this trip, everybody's back on board and they decide to head straight for the Black Lagoon. We got our merry crew on the way. And again, though, you'd think they'd just they'd go back and freshen up and get provisions. But no, it's been a week and we're still going to gung-ho. We're still going straight out deeper into the Amazon, down the river. They're asking for it. They probably were well stocked for this trip. I noticed, I think Kay wears something like 10 to 12 outfits this whole movie. Yeah, well, the guys are only wearing those uh, bathing suits the whole time. And the captain's not changing. He doesn't look like he's changed in a year. That's true. But on their trip to the Black Lagoon, we get a little more romantic conversation between David and, and Kay. But then Mark brings out this giant harpoon gun. Like, I've never seen a more clear metaphor for something but oh, dude, yeah this was like the biggest phallic reference that i've seen in a long time dave and Kay, they're having their little whatever in the corner and then here he comes he's like look what i got and just whips it out and clunks it on the table i love what the captain's like you know like what are you gonna do with that and he's like whatever i want i love the contrast here too because like the spear gun is his weapon and david's weapon is the camera he's like i'm here to study this isn't a safari i mean i think he actually says that later when they see the creature and he really wants to get him but he's like what are you gonna do with that thing we're here to observe uh, I think he says that like 20 times in this movie. I know. Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they come to the entrance of this black lagoon and it is every bit the paradise that they've been led to believe that it is. And so the first thing that they do is set down a net to catch any potential wildlife that might be in this lagoon. But the first order of business is to get down into the water and get to the bottom of that lagoon and collect some rock samples. Yeah, they have to do lead tests or match samples or they had some lip service to like uranium matching and this and that. I was like, all right, whatever. You could just say we need to see if the dirt matches our fossil and I'd have been happy. Right. There's a great moment with Captain Lucas where he's like, what are they doing down there? Like, And Dr. Maya has to explain to him that they're going down there for rocks to match with the um, stuff that they found at the excavation site. But I just love how that interaction goes between the two of them because Lucas cannot figure out like what anyone could possibly learn from rocks. So that's pretty funny. But for yeah. the most part, this scene is a lot of underwater photography. Yeah, there's a lot of scenes that a lot of the scene is a lot of underwater photography. I love it, but I was surprised how much of it like really is just kind of stretched out by the underwater photography. It's impressive. I understand that. But I think it made me kind of feel like we could cut some of this or speed some of it up or, the, you know, like if it wasn't part of the spectacle, this movie would be cut by like 15 minutes. 100%. In 54, no one would have seen underwater sequences like this before. So to a large degree, it is a spectacle. There are other movies with a lot of underwater sequences in them where I feel like, okay, I get it. We can move on. You know, I mentioned being a, a James Bond fan, Thunderball has a lot of underwater sequences. That's a movie where I feel like, okay, guys, I get that we're underwater. We don't need to have this much footage. But here, it doesn't really bother me because everything that's happening in these shots has a purpose. We're constantly following David or Mark, at least through this scene. They're searching for rocks. David stops to cut some foliage from like a, a tree stump or something like that. So there's stuff actually happening in these shots. It's not just a couple of guys swimming around. Of course, we do get a really great shot of the creature in here as he yeah. sort of pokes his face out of the weeds. I think it's around 24 minutes, 45 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. We get the first look at the creature's face. 
That's a really great jump scare. That was awesome. That was very unexpected. And like, I do like the underwater photography. It's not like they're just down there swimming around doing nothing. I mean, we will kind of get one scene that's a little like that. Yeah. However, what I like about the underwater stuff is, um, well, the suit work. When we get to the suit, like that always blows my mind. So like I could watch the creature swim for hours. And two, like eventually, like it really starts to establish a mood. It really kind of disorients you. It's done really well. You know, I'm just saying from a modern standpoint, I look back now and I go like, okay, like it wouldn't be so long if they weren't trying to show you something new. That's why I said that there are movies that definitely take this sort of idea and go too far with it. This is definitely not one of them. That fish face is uh, shocking. All we've seen is the arm so far. And then they're like, check out this mug. It's like, wow. And it just plays so well on camera with the lighting underwater. It just blacks out his eyes and his mouth. He looks almost hollow inside, which is unsettling. They use doubles for David and Mark for this sequence, but I thought it was clever that David gets two air tanks and Mark gets one so that we can tell them apart while they're underwater just a fun detail and then once again they hang down like just below the surface for a couple seconds to get used to the pressure as we learned in like the second scene of this movie so nice little callback there and now we've got stuff to study they come back up with some rocks and some greenery i liked that move of david getting k some leaves from that tree just because it's like oh well you know i couldn't get you flowers so here's some leaves Fun little detail. So now while the guys kind of get out of their scuba gear to go back down and and start studying the stuff that they brought up, Kay decides that she's going to go for a dip in the lagoon herself. She's like jealous, right? She's like, how great was that? Like, it must have been amazing to swim down there, you know? So she's like, I want to go for a swim down there. I want to see what was so cool. Like, I get it, but it's like, tell someone. Don't just jump overboard because we established there's like crocodiles down there. There's probably a piranha or two. Just fair warning. Yeah, I think Captain Lucas at one point says all of the animals out here in the Amazon are killers. He gives the Werner Herzog speech, basically, where he's like, the jungle is unforgiving and (laughs) it has no mercy whatsoever. It will tear you limb from limb. It cares not who you are. Mike, I have been waiting years to hear your Werner Herzog, uh, (laughs) and I'm so happy to have gotten it on this episode. Yeah, so this scene, arguably the most famous sequence in the movie, we get Kay in the iconic white swimsuit. Now, I know that Joseph Breen was concerned about bestiality and the anatomy of the creature, and I'm sure that he had some issue with the swimsuit, but it's clear Universal was like, you know what, we Gave him what he wanted on the creature and all that stuff. So let's see if we can get away with a little bit more with this swimsuit. I mean, pretty tame by today's standards, but still gorgeous look. I love the design of that. Really pops against the water and everything else. Like it helps the character stand out a yes. lot on screen. So like visually, like it's a very helpful cue to follow around the screen and all that. And so now Kay is just swimming through the lagoon, and this is where the creature, the Gill Man, gets his first look at the beauty in this Beauty and the Beast story. It's our first good look at all of him. We'll see him start swimming around, and man, is he graceful. Like, I can't understand. It's one of those moments where my eyes like, what am I looking at? I still don't understand how they pulled that off. It's amazing to think that Riku Browning didn't have any sort of breathing apparatus with him. He did all of that just with the strength of his own lungs. I can't imagine he could see very well either. And you can't see well underwater in the first place. Remarkable. Just 
Yeah. There's not much more to the scene except that Kay and the creature sort of swim in tandem for a bit. Just beautiful cinematography here. Now, I heard a story somewhere, but you know, this movie played in drive-ins. And if you were to see this movie in a drive-in in the 50s, these sequences, you know, with the nighttime sky and the dark screen might make the creature and Kay appear to be like swimming through the air. So I can only imagine how much more beautiful this was seeing at a drive-in. Interesting. Yeah, we also didn't mention yet, uh, I don't think, since we started talking about the film itself, that it's in widescreen. It is in widescreen, that's right. That this is around the year when most things started going widescreen, from my understanding. And so that's really nice to add scope to everything, especially the underwater stuff. Like It does such a good job isolating the images when you need them to sort of pull back you know fill up more or less of the frame than you need whatever but like the widescreen i feel like they're actually using it they're actually like considering it as they're making this movie so i just looked it up and this film was shot in a 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio it's definitely wider than what we've been watching i think everything we've seen up until now has been that sort of full screen aspect ratio so definitely very cool to see a wide picture here and these sequences look even better with it so captain lucas notices that Kay has been swimming out in the lagoon she's a little too far for safety right if anything were to happen she's a little too far out for them to come get her but this is fantastic sequence probably uh, like we talk about jaws this is probably the moment that most influences jaws as Kay starts to tread water and communicate with everybody back on the boat the creature takes that as an opportunity to like swim up close and he swipes her leg just once or twice. He just like barely touches her foot or like flirts with the idea. Yeah, he takes a, a swipe at her leg. She starts to maybe get a hint that there's something not so safe in the water. And so she swims back to the boat, back to safety. Love that whole sequence. Might be my favorite scene in the whole movie. They seriously freak out that she's swimming out there by herself and, and they have to like start the boat to go get her like she is not really hearing them she's not listening she's like what what's the big deal and the captain's definitely freaking the hell out very cool very tense something gets caught and destroys the net like the whole thing just starts shaking as if like you know she pissed it off royally we get a sense of the creature's strength here which i think is a little bit overdone you know i don't necessarily buy that the gill man is that strong but one thing is like aquaman you know living underwater you get used to the pressure so true you gain like a lot of muscle i would assume like all that mass like you get stronger when you're in less gravity and like out of the water and i also think like he's armor plated because they're gonna shoot the hell out of him they're gonna harpoon his ass they're gonna set him on fire it's like trying to kill rasputin with this gill man like it's just so freaking hard to do so i kind of buy the fact that he's got like super strength yeah it ain't a major detail just something i thought was funny that he's like suddenly strong enough to like rock this entire boat so they pull the net up and there's a big gaping hole in it but they do find a claw you know he didn't get out of it entirely unscathed he left a little piece of himself behind and so now they start to wonder okay we got this fossil what if there's one of these things still alive in here yeah and and like wouldn't that be the find of the century yeah we'll bring it to the next world's fair i mean this is the most king kong-esque thing about it right they find something cool out in the jungle and they want to bring it back home what i also like about this which i guess is also sort of kong ish kong related but 
sort of on a different scale is that one of these guys wants to kill it and yep. the other guy just wants to take its picture like wants to document it you know and they they went to skull island with a movie camera originally just to like document and make a movie but then they ended up like well we're gonna have to drag this thing back with us to america <laughs> you know no one's gonna believe us i kind of like that spirit is alive and being debated here on the boat as well yeah i mean almost exactly right because mark grabs the harpoon gun right like that's that's his first choice david yep. wants to photograph it so he gets this big underwater camera his whole plan is just to take some pictures and leave the thing alone mark's trophy hunting do you think that camera is one of the cameras they use to make this movie probably not but i would be curious to see what they use to shoot this movie and to compare it you know i, yeah, I would imagine yeah. a movie camera would be bigger i don't know i didn't actually get to see any photos of the movie cameras that they built because I was wondering if maybe, if not, that was just technology that the cameraman also had, where he's like, oh, you need to take underwater photos in the movie? Here, I've got an underwater photo camera as well. It's authentic. We got another extended underwater sequence. Beautiful photography, as always. We kind of get a bit of the Jaws theme here. Yep. It gets a little tense here. The creature starts to peek out of his depths a little bit. David tries to get a photo, and he's pretty sure he gets one. We'll find out in a few minutes if he did or not but mark's all about just shooting this thing with the harpoon there's a little bit of cat and mouse here he does manage to get a shot off yeah. and he does spear the creature once they lose track of it right like he swims off and they need to go up yes ultimately it is a fruitless adventure here well they do see the creature so now they know what screwed up the net that you know there's a live one out here it's related to the arm now they know for sure so that's really cool it's like when they get up they're like we saw it we saw it it exists like we're not going anywhere like we're in the spot game on now yes but you know they didn't manage to bag the animal and they didn't successfully get a photo of him as we're going to find out as like as soon as david and mark come out of the water it's like now these two philosophies are really starting to come to a head right like yeah. now it's becoming a, an issue for the two guys right because this thing exists and now what do we do about it and david's like why'd you shoot it what are you doing you know <laughs> and he's like what's the difference like kill it and bring it back and he's like but we could learn so much more if, it, if we have it alive like let's capture it and he's like you know how dangerous that is if we could just kill it we should kill it so it's like the whole pacifist not kind of thing like it's pretty cool actually i wasn't expecting there to be so much of this like duality of man stuff especially right after after we just watched Jekyll and Hyde, like this is sort of a Jekyll and Hyde thing playing out between the two guys, the more sort of like passive one and the more very aggressive one. Yeah, definitely. While they're developing the picture and realizing that they didn't capture anything, the Gill Man comes aboard and manages to kill Chico. Yeah. So they're all distracted and one of the crewmen gets dragged overboard. Well, one reason that they're distracted is because Captain Lucas is telling the legend of the quote Gill Man. So yes. we get that said officially like in the movie. Like I was very surprised. I don't I didn't remember it was called out by name at any point. Otherwise, like why didn't they name the movie The Gill Man? Like, go with that. That's a snappy one. But I like that. So, like, he's telling this story and he's talking about, like, the Komongo fish and, you know, all this shit about how, like, things don't evolve sometimes or, like, things stay in a certain pocket and like evolve on their own away from the rest of society or or things that existed millions of years ago are still on the earth with us today and that's when it cuts to like the creature killing chico yeah <laughs> i thought that was a cool parallel perfect timing so now this thing has killed another member of the crew and they know it exists right like they know it exists so 
David decides he's going to create like a tank on board that can hold it. They want to like capture it to study it. And so they build this like little water tank on the boat. The cover is like a bamboo, like crosshatch top. I was thinking like the deer hunter. They eventually will put him in one of those little, little like water cages. What's crazy too is like, you would think Mark would be down to do the more dangerous deed would be like, yeah, you know, like capturing it alive. Like that's the challenge. Like anyone could kill this thing. Like if I were to capture this alive, like that's the ticket. But you would think, yeah. Yeah, you would hope. But one thing I also loved were the wet footprints that the creature leaves behind on the boat. That was really cool. I love how they're like, does it seek revenge? Does it remember? Can it think? That's all fun. So now the plan is to capture this thing. And thanks to a plan from Captain Lucas, he suggests the use of this substance called rotenone. It's a real thing. It's like this like white powder. If you put it in the water, it'll knock them out and they'll wake up with like real bad hangover, right? Right. Yeah. It seems like he's going to poison the water and paralyze everything in it right. so that it'll float to the surface and then they could capture this thing. So they take a pass in the dinghy, right? They spread some of this rotenone across the surface of the water. A little while later, they see a bunch of the fish have sort of have risen to the surface, but no Gilman. There's a really funny shot where they like the time lapse and then it like dissolves to after they've dosed the water. And then they see all the fish floating on top of the water. Yes. <laughs> that was kind of funny. But during this scene, something really important happens thematically. Uh, so Kay is smoking a cigarette. She's watching Mark and David out there spreading the rotenone she's smoking the cigarette and she flicks the butt into the water and the camera follows her flicking the butt into the water and then from the water to the gill man looking up at her so clearly these guys were like this is an environmentalist movie and so if you're missing the subtext there there it is yeah there's actually a lot of nice camera work in this movie out of the water as well you know there's a lot of nice tracking shots like that shot you just described or those sequence of shots like this is very well made like otherwise you know it's not just the underwater photography that's cool to look at it's like the rest of the movie is like really well made too so i, I just you know i don't think we mentioned you know just because there aren't a lot of deep cast shadows or like creepy castles and things like that like it still provides yeah i don't think you need to have dark shadows and and, and whatnot to make it scary or compelling i mean king kong is a monster movie however else you want to classify it it, it is a monster movie and that whole movie takes place for the most part during the day or at least all the jungle stuff all the stuff on skull island so yeah i mean something doesn't have to be in the dark to be scary i think that this movie does look great all around william e snyder was credited for the cinematography but I'm sure there were multiple camera operators on this thing. And so I don't have a point beyond that. But you're right. It is a beautiful film, cinematography and editing wise. When the Rotenone doesn't work, they decide that maybe it just didn't get deep enough into the lagoon. So they decide they're going to use, I think it's aluminum. They create these pellets, sort of like what you might use to shock your swimming pool, like these like uh, chlorine tablets, right? So there's like these little tablets, they drop in and there's a another amazing shot of like these tablets like sinking down into the lagoon one after the other this hopefully is going to do the trick here this is when they debate again about their prospects you know and it sounds like mark's going a little nuts and mad with power because he's all about fame and fortune and and you get 
David again talking about the secrets of the deep will help us unlock the secrets of outer space. <laughs> <laughs> this is so cool. I like I love how the movie keeps breaking to be like there's a debate going on amongst all of this. Yeah, I think on a script level, this movie is just very simple. The strength of this thing is is all in the visual. Like we've talked about the cinematography, we've talked about the the Gilman suit. The broad strokes of this story are very simple. Basically King Kong in the Amazon. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's good that they did that because it's very easy to follow. Like anyone can follow it from a child to an adult, and you yep. know maybe it gives it more of like a Saturday matinee serial vibe to it. But these monster movies around this time were sort of giving off that vibe anyway because of their budgets or tones and all that kind of stuff. But I just appreciate that even though the movie can't really find more to discuss they keep going back to these two drilling home their ideals and their thesis about what's going on and stuff and like they can't agree like they just they're colleagues yeah and- yep they're on opposite sides of this thing and they're just going to have to deal with it. They are oil and water for sure. So now with the Rotenone having gone deeper into the lagoon, they wait and they wait to nightfall. This is like maybe one of the only nighttime sequences we get in the movie, which is amazing. I love this. They're waiting on deck, just kind of keeping an eye on the lagoon. The gill man creeps up the side of the ship and he falls off the boat. He sees the light. Like he hates the fire of the light. So we got a little Frankenstein monster action there and he slips right off the side of the boat again. <laughs> right. And, and he swims all the way to the other side of the lagoon. And that's when the, they turn on the spotlight and we get that amazing shot where he stands straight up and we get Get almost a full body shot of this thing yeah he, he basically stands up and like takes a bow and waves it <laughs> it's probably like the equivalent of you know i imagine he's like giving them the finger being like come and get me it would have been amazing david's first thought is like i gotta go after him yeah right which which seems crazy right but he's like hey the thing's drugged he can't hurt me and so he and Mark go back out there. And this is where we get our first look at the creature's lair. Oh, yeah. Geography gets a little confusing because they swim down below the surface of the water, but then they end up in what is probably an above ground grotto. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is that like they swam down under and then up into this kind of cave and the cave is on the same level as the dry land or or near it or like close to that because then they're going to go out of the cave entrance and be like right where the boat is pretty much. It's like a big circle back around sort of move that they do. But what I want to talk about quickly here is this cave because it seems like they might have had ideas that they didn't explore with the origins of this creature because this place doesn't just look like a cave it looks like some kind of ruined temple of some kind or another. <laughs> like, this looks like some place that maybe weirdo ceremonies were taking place at at some point through history or something might have slipped through some kind of dark dimension somewhere along the line. Like I was looking at the matte painting and the background of this place. My mind was just racing going like, wow, if only they could have explored some of that a little further. I agree with you. I don't think that was the intent, which is probably why they didn't dive further into that. If you'll excuse that pun. I think that it was just by accident that it ended up kind of looking that way. But I think that would be a great 
direction to go into if somebody were to remake this movie and like maybe you take that original legend from that Orson Welles dinner right and like okay so these villages believe in this thing it's going to come and and take a a virgin every year so now they're like maybe kind of in a weird way worshipping this thing maybe there are temples built in its honor that would be a cool take on this character if someone were to do that would love that yeah because especially at the end when the creature gets Kay into his cave like it looks like she's put on an altar and there's smoke everywhere and it it just has that feeling it almost looks like a frank frazetta painting my mind was kind of going all over the place definitely while mark and david are in the grotto looking for the creature he's made his way back out to the outside where k and the last of the crewmen z is standing guard and k lets out this ear-piercing scream. Z rushes to defend her, gets killed, and K is swept up by the creature immediately, but he succumbs to the effect of the rotenone. So, like, in that moment, he just starts to pass out. And so, Mark immediately grabs a rifle and just starts whipping him with this rifle. I know, it was almost like, stop, you got him already. Like, he's knocked out, and he gives him, like, an extra one to the head. It was so aggressive. You really hate this thing, and you don't even know why. But now the creature is held captive on the Rita. I love that shot, the immediate next shot. It's the creature like in the water, just sort of looking through the bars. We see quite a few shots of that in the next sequence. It's very unsettling because when he's moving, he there's so much movement. Yes. Every part of him is moving and, and he's got the fins and all that kind of stuff. And it's so cool. But then when he's still, it's like freaky how still still and stoic he can be when he's out of the water or or in this case when he's in prisons and so when they just have like the shot of him kind of just like waiting there like he just looks like he's waiting like you know like he's thinking his way out of this like there's just so much going on behind those eyes without doing anything and just being a mask but in the way of his behavior shifting in and out of the water to me it's very unsettling i agree when he's in the water swimming he's beautiful graceful but when he's just staring, it is, I get uncomfortable watching it. It's maybe the most horrifying thing he can do. So in this next scene, we get to spend a little more time with Dr. Edwin Thompson, who has been a member of this crew since they uh, set off. Sort of. I don't remember him at all. I've been calling him Dr. Pipe at this yeah. point. <laughs> just smoking his pipe. I'm like, where did you come from? He's been there the whole time, but like this is arguably his scene. It starts with him having a conversation on deck with Kay. I think this is one of the better scenes, dialogue-wise, that this movie has to offer because the scene is all about Dr. Thompson telling Kay, like, look, she's been sort of appeasing Mark this entire movie because she got where she is because of him. But Dr. Thompson's like, no, you've well earned your spot by this point. You know what I mean? Like, you, you have done the hard work you belong here not that you had to repay mark but if you had to you've well done that and and more and so you get a say as much as any of us do and so i love that he is validating Kay's inclusion in this trip and her status among the rest of them so that's a really cool scene yeah if only he didn't have to die for it and here's where she says that line i said in the opening where she talks about like fear is for people who whistle in the dark i don't understand that but that's kind of a poetic thing to say in a monster movie you know so while they're having this conversation the gill man manages to escape it's so awesome he's just been sitting there gnawing at his bindings the whole time probably listening to them being like they're not even paying attention 
they're going off about some other shit. I'm going to break out and kill him. I love when he hops out and like there's that lantern that's hanging next to him and he just smashes the hell out of it. Oh, yeah. Like, I love that. He's just coming out like guns blazing. Dr. Thompson does try to use the lantern, a lantern, to sort of scare him off. But the creature manages to grab hold of his face, do quite a bit of damage, as we'll learn, before... Thompson is able to swing the lantern into the creature's face, setting him on fire. I don't know if you noticed this. There is a composite shot here. Oh, okay. I don't entirely know what was going on here, but if you watch the scene closely, there's a composite of the creature's head. So clearly, I think there was a stuntman. I don't know that Ben Chapman was the one who was set on fire in this sequence, but something was done probably for Dr. Thompson's safety or the actor Whit Bissell. So there's a composite. You should check it out. The head is is separate from the body. But I mean, it happens so quickly that you might not even notice it. Yeah, I didn't notice it because I was amazed at the action that was going on. Like, that's the other thing about these Universal Monster movies is that there might be just sort of like a lull for a while. And then there's like this insane burst of action where you have to be like, what just happened? Like so many things are happening at once. The creature breaks out and then he like tries to rip the face off of the doctor and then he gets a freaking lantern smashed on him and set on fire and all i'm thinking is there's a guy in a suit and now he's on fire and now he's gonna go jump in the water give this guy all the oscar because like oh my gosh like i didn't notice any composite anything it all played perfectly to me like it was so it felt so real and part of it i think was the editing the fast pace of it all you get that sense of what just happened it was great out of the whole show this might be one of my favorite sequences in like a universal monster movie Yeah, what a perfectly executed sequence here. The action in this is not frequent, but it is intense when it happens. And I think that that makes up for all of the time spent under the water swimming. You know what I mean? Like, I like that pacing. So the the violence sort of punctuates all of the beauty that's happening around it. Yeah. So now with Dr. Thompson gravely injured, he may die uh, if infection does set in. And so now they're faced with a decision. Do they stay or do they go? David has decided that it's best... If they leave, things already killed four of their men, uh, injured a fifth. And they're not equipped to deal with monsters, is what he says. I love that he drops that line. He's like, we're not monster hunters. He uses the word monster. And I just, I was like, yes, I appreciate that. It does feel strange. It's almost, in this case, it's almost like in a zombie movie, if you were to refer to the zombie as a zombie, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. So it does stand out a little bit here. But I like how, you know, even David is like... We could always come back. Like, we know exactly what's going on now. Like, we know what we need. We know, like, we can come back with, like, an army if we need an army. What's what's the problem here? But Mark's all in. His whole thing is, we're here now. We can't let this opportunity go. I'm not leaving without my prize. It's like, okay. Yeah, and nobody is with him. He tries to reason with Dr. Maya. Like, come on, surely you see the value in this. <laughs> But they all insist, everyone except Mark, we got to get out of here. So he tries to reason with Captain Lucas. And this is where Lucas pulls out his his little knife there and, and starts to threaten Mark with it. It's a really, really great moment for him. Little knife. So Mark basically pulls the, like, I'm the captain now. Like, <laughs> yes. my expedition, this is my money. And then, you know, Captain Lucas is like, oh, yeah, you're the captain? What do you think about this? And, like, pulls out his, like, it's not quite a machete, but it's like Rambo's knife. Yeah, it is like a Rambo knife, yeah. This is, like, the most violent part of the movie because it's, like, man-on-man violence, like, human-on-human. He puts it right up against the dude's neck, like, under his chin, and is like, what are you going to do? We're leaving, okay? 
As they start to make their way out of the Black Lagoon, they have what I wrote down in my notes as a sort of Evil Dead moment. Oh, yeah. The exit has been blocked off. All they need is like one of them to get down on their knees and scream. At some point, the Gill Man has created this little makeshift dam in front of the entrance to the lagoon. So what I love about this, and I understand they couldn't have explored more of this, but maybe in the remake, is I like how he has qualities of other things that live in the river you know like he can be a beaver he can be a piranha he can be you know maybe he could do some kind of constricting like that would like a boa constrictor like it's just kind of cool how he does things that other things in the water do not just a fish man but like he's beaver man too or or an anaconda mike yes (laughs) anaconda like i was thinking anaconda so much watching this movie i'm like that's another one it's another like on the river in the jungle so the gill man has created this obstruction while they're distracted with that he manages to destroy their dinghy he is basically cutting off all of their resources so now the plan is to like use the winch on the boat to pull this obstruction out of the way now it's just like really just a bunch of like sticks and tree branches and and, and shit like that but it's proving to be very difficult but like a big heavy tree you know like there's like again back to his superhuman strength the gill man has been busy like knocking down trees like dragging him across the lagoon like really creating a problem While they're trying to pull this bundle of logs and branches out of the way, the Gill Man, I love this sequence, he swims sort of underneath, he knows what they're doing, and he like yanks on the winch. And like completely undoes it. So now it's, he's going to force these guys into the water, which is incredibly smart. Yep, got to be on his terms. Even though he functions in and out of the water, I feel like the water is his playing field. You know, he's more comfortable in the water. Like he could live above ground, but I feel like he prefers the water. Oh, yeah. They come down into the water with their scuba gear and he's like, you adopted the water. I was born in it. <laughs> Absolutely. They have to put on all of this extra gear to be down there, whereas on land, they don't. So, like, it makes sense that they have their advantages. Yes. And so this is where the Mark and David thing really comes to a head. It's like, it comes to fisticuffs where, like, they just cannot agree they're going to fight each other physically over this disagreement. David knocks Mark out, grabs his scuba gear, and heads out into the water. So while he's out there planning to figure out what's going on with the winch, reattach it so they can get out of there, Mark decides on his own he's going to take that harpoon gun and hunt this thing down. Good luck. I loved how the fight was, like, right in front of the other doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was, like, all bandaged up and he's like you could see his one eye like following the action and the conversation and they started to beat the crap out of each other right in front of him yeah the creature gets his arm in through the window like this creature man is not giving up you know like he is terrorizing him big jason vibes from this creature yeah you know i hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it but you're right he is an underwater sort of slasher in a weird way but now we're in like full battle mode with david and mark in the water both of them are armed with harpoon guns the creature emerges emerges and takes at least one maybe two shots from the harpoon this is where mark gets his comeuppance for being right. a douchehole the whole movie the creature sort of drags him down below the surface kicking and screaming they tussle for a while i mean 
mean, this this is some of the most impressive, I guess, fight choreography I've seen, if only because it's underwater. And one of the two is in latex rubber suit. Probably can't see very well. Yeah, the next time I'm watching this, I got to count out loud, like how long the shots are, because you know they had to hold their breath probably twice as long as that in the suit. Riku Browning was on record saying something to the effect of there were claims that he could hold his breath for like four or five minutes. He said, yeah, if you're still, he can maybe hold his breath for four minutes. But like when you're moving around, you're swimming, you're expelling oxygen, you know, that four or five minutes turns into like two or three minutes really quickly. Would love to know how they were able to shoot that. I'm sure it took a lot of takes. But by the end of this sequence, Mark, in an amazing shot, is dead, floating to the surface. Crazy. His lifeless body floats to the top. Kay realizes that he's dead and lets out her third or fourth scream of the movie. Great lungs on her. Like, great scream queen vibes coming from her. Like, great sounds, great screaming, great audio sample. And so David drags Mark's lifeless body back to the ship. This is where they come up with that idea. David is still intent on not killing the creature. He wants to just get out of there. But he's realized that it is going to be more difficult than just swimming under the surface and reattaching the winch. And so it's Captain Lucas who comes up with this uh, expression, like you can't just shoo it away like a mosquito. That gives David this idea to take what's left of the rotenone. There's not much left. They've already used a bunch of it in the past two attempts to, to knock this thing unconscious. And so they have a little bit of the rotenone left. And his idea is to make like a solution with water that they can fill into one of the pressurized air tank and then use that as like a spray so that he can fend off the creature while he's underwater and potentially just make it groggy so that they can escape. Yeah, because all they want to do is like reattach the wench and move the shit out of the way so that they can get the boat out of there. And I feel like at this point, they're like, we've had so many men down, like we don't want to kill this thing anymore. We just need it to leave us alone for a few minutes so that we can get the hell out of here. Yes, up to this point, I love that David is still just like, let's not kill this thing. And he'll be like that up until the end. I can't wait. While they're creating this like rotenone solution, they're in that below deck room with, with Dr. Thompson all bandaged up. This is one of my favorite sequences with the creature's claw. So the, the claw comes through the porthole and defenseless Dr. Thompson like can't do anything. He can only like do muffled screams through his bandages. And so David like springs into action, tries to swat this thing away. Captain Lucas goes up on deck and tries to shoot it, but misses. But it's enough to to sort of scare the creature away. But I love that look on Thompson's face as he's like about to get maimed by this thing again. That is so horrifying. Because, <laughs> like You're paralyzed and then you're paralyzed with fear and your body. So like, you know, and you know, like it's coming for you again. Yeah, the, the, the fate of this guy. So now David heads back under underwater with his new rotenone spray. I mean, it doesn't take long. Almost as soon as he's trying to get this winch going again, the Gilman shows up again. He manages to get the cable back around the log. He starts to strip off his scuba gear and like they're going to start the whole process over again, getting this obstruction out of their path. And now while all their men are up front dealing with this winch, Kay is sort of left alone by herself. And that is perfect opportunity for the gill man to climb up the side of the ship, grab her and then take her down into the depths of the lagoon. That was a crazy shot, too, when he grabs her. They just sort of fall overboard together. Yes. 
I imagine it was a stunt double for Kay as well, but still a really impressive shot to have both of them, unbroken shot of them just going right overboard into the water. Yeah, I was very surprised. I almost wondered if this actress, the Julie Adams actress, if if she had diving or swimming experience, you know, like people who go to work for James Cameron. Right. If she came and was prepared to do that and did her own swimming and all that kind of thing. I would love to know, but probably not. Probably not in the 50s. I think they would just have right. a stunt person do it. But I love that the immediate shot of them swimming down into the bottom of that lagoon. I don't know if you noticed this. I mean, this is, this is more tribute to Riku Browning's swimming capabilities, but she's not kicking you know she's total victim mode she's not helping at all so he has to do all of the work there in that suit so i think that's like doubly impressive because she's like totally limp through that whole sequence it's remarkable just how much he had to do he takes her back to his like grotto again geography is a little bit questionable but david is not far behind he's got the harpoon gun now you know which is weird seeing him with the harpoon gun but i guess push has come to shove things are things are out of control at this point like even even he needs to break his one rule (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't actually have to use it he actually fights the creature it's like hand-to-hand combat yeah pretty impressive sequence i love the shot like when he wanders into the the section of the grotto where Kay is she's by herself there's like a fog over the ground there it's beautiful uh, she almost looks like she's like floating in the fog, but of course she's yeah. she's laying over a rock. They do like the hand to hand thing, and then he like stabs it, right? Yes, I mean he's using a knife that he has. I think he's using rocks at one point because he like stabs it in the neck. It looks like he takes it, you know, when when you see in like movies and uh, you stab someone, then you put your hand on top of it and you push it down even yes. deeper. <laughs> yes, I feel like he did that. Even after being stabbed, this creature could still lift him over his head. Right, like, like I. I love the strength on this thing. So the creature's a little bit distracted, right? David manages to sort of escape his grasp, get over to Kay. And as the creature approaches, Lucas and Dr. Maya have their rifles. They begin unloading on the creature. They keep firing round after round into him, but he keeps coming until David says, guys, enough, no more. Let him go. Again, it's just like, I think you got him. He's good. Just let him die now. The following sequence, it's so sad. I think this is just me and my love of the Gilman talking because he's the monster of the movie, but he looks so sad, like just sort of gasping and stumbling into the water. And then he like, you know, sort of struggles in the water. And the final shot of the movie is him sort of lifeless floating in the water. He's walking away and you get like this medium shot and you can see all the bullet holes in him. That was a surprise and uh, then he just goes into the water and he and he sinks into the deep and that's the end of him nice fade to black there that's the creature from the black lagoon i mean any any final thoughts on that one i think we said as much as we could say yeah just that it's awesome i really think it still holds up no offense to abbott and costello but i'm glad we're back into the monsters and a new monster right like this is our first new monster in a really long time and they really knocked it out of the park they were on something there's something about you know and they touch on it in this movie there's something about the water the deep the black lagoon like you can't see the bottom like everyone's sort of in their own way like afraid of what might be in the water and it's just such a great primal fear to 
prey on and to create this monster out of and give us this movie and and i know he'll be back and i'm looking forward to that and so this was just a great watch i actually watched it twice i was i was able to find the time to watch this one twice for the show i'm glad i did yeah it's just it's been a blast yeah you, you touched on something that's really interesting this is an original screenplay like a lot of the earlier universal monsters were based on books or plays or at the very least existing legends even the mummy was drawing from like real egyptian sort of mythology but all of it was was supernatural in nature right you had vampires you had the wolfman the mummy and, and the frankenstein monster this is the first monster we've had where it's just pure evolution right and it exists in a place where you could go and potentially swim around and encounter this thing more than the others i feel like the gill man is the most realistic the most to be afraid of i love this change of pace for the universal monsters overall i think that it's it's a, it's a perfect film as much as it borrows from king kong and other other properties you know as simplistic as it is i think that it's its successes here and the way they innovated with makeup really helped this one stand head and shoulders above a lot of the other science fiction films of the era certainly one of the best you know i would say godzilla creature from the black lagoon are maybe the two defining films of the atomic era i'd have to maybe think a little bit more about that to add a couple others but i have no problem saying that those two maybe maybe most important love it and now it's time for us to dive back down into our underwater lair but we'll be back on friday march 31st to discuss the first sequel to creature from the black lagoon 1955's revenge of the creature so we don't have to say goodbye for too long we will have one more abbott and costello movie in between revenge of the creature and the creature walks among us but it's mostly creature from here on out which is really cool awesome in the meantime you can follow us on twitter at monster made pod on instagram and facebook at the monsters that made us and you can email us at the monsters that made us at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at dan cologne mike where can listeners find you follow me on twitter at the underscore mikester and you can hear all the other shows i'm on at cageclub.me if you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a patreon supporter you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us you can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes it helps other people discover the show and we can't forget about our t-shirts on t public you can find the link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody.